Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And in this episode, we are talking about The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus, which that's not my print, French pronunciation before we get drilled uh, by someone about pronunciations. Albert Camus, is that better? Um, whatever. We're just going to say Camus the whole time anyways. Yeah, let it go. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, Really, we, we were going to start a series of episodes on his work, The Rebel, because that's much more up our alley as kind of like history mm -hmm. and theory. But before we went down the, that rabbit hole, we figured we should at least kind of go in chronological order of his work and kind of theoretical order and just do a short episode. I guess I don't know how short it's going to be, but an episode on the myth of Sisyphus, because it frames sort of his absurdist philosophy, and it really frames what he's trying to accomplish in The Rebel. So we felt like we had to do that first. Um, this kind of, I guess, is in our, like, not kind of, it is, I suppose, our series on nihilism, though wildly out of order. We're jumping ahead. We, I think the last episode was on revolutionary nihilism in Russia, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we're skipping a little bit of its development in yeah. the West, but that, And I'm working on the next, in sort of, chronological order the next thing we're going to do is Max Stirner and the ego in its own better translated as unique in its property so I'm deep into that right now um, and then we're going to have to do Nietzsche clearly and then I don't know what we would do after that um, but anyways Camus is out of order we're jumping way ahead because we want to start doing the rebel like uh, also so anyways all that to say we're doing the myth of Sisyphus today so let's do a short episode a short bio I mean on Camus himself, we're not going to go into length here, um, but he was born in Algeria in 1913, which is kind of important because he was a pied noir. Do you want to tell us what that is? Uh, he's basically, a, a, to be blunt, a, like a white French colonist um, living in Algeria. Yeah, exactly. Um, he actually had a really interesting like just life because of where and the time period he was born. Um, living in colonial Algeria, like Jared said, and then he moves to France, which was common. And during World War II, he joins the French Resistance and he edits the underground newspaper, of which I cannot remember the name right now. Combat, maybe? Um, I think that was the name. Mm -hmm. He's the editor of that newspaper, which then gives him sort of a celebrity status when the war is over um, due to his writing and his work there um, as an author. Um, and his status at a, as a Pied Noir but also a leftist, leaves him conflicted during the Algerian War for Independence, of which we have an entire episode on, so check that out. He basically takes the middle road, I guess, which is supporting the integration of Algerians and French. Um, and his position draws then criticism from everyone on every side, um, both the anti-colonialists and the French um, colonial efforts, basically critique uh, Camus. And then later on, he even takes critique from um, like post-colonialist thinkers such as like Edward Said and others about his position like at the time, which I, I'm not defending him rightfully. So his position was not, yeah, I don't I, think, anti-colonialist so, enough. Yeah, there's no middle ground in that no. <laughs> in, in Algerian colonization. Like, mm -hmm. like the freedom fighters were in the right. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but he was a prolif prolific author and that's what he's known for. Clearly, he wrote many, you know, journalistic articles. He was a journalist. 
novels, plays, essays, books. His two most famous books are The Myth of Sisyphus, which is both nonfiction, Myth of Sisyphus and The Rebel, which is what we're focusing on. His most famous, um, I guess, novels are like The Strangers, I think the most famous, and then The Plague. There's one more I can't remember right now. Caligula, is that it? Which are plays and novels that are... The Stranger is by far the most famous of his fiction, works of fiction, which ironically I was reading before we even started down this journey. I've been reading over the past couple of weeks. I just finished it uh, yesterday, I think, actually last night. It's actually one of my... It's, it's weird because it's like, as all of the works of fiction go, like it's not that good, but for some reason it's one of my favorite. I read it, I think, once a year probably or something. Um, I don't know why. I have no explanation for it. I couldn't defend it as a good work of fiction, but I just like it. Um, he won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature at the age of 44. He's the second youngest to ever win that award. Do you know who the youngest is? I would be surprised if you know this. I only know because I Googled because I was curious. I have no idea. Not even Kipling yet. won it at the age oh, of 42. Gross. Yeah, oh, which made me unhappy as well. He died in 1960 at the age of 46 in a car accident. So he died fairly young. Um, in 1960, which was kind of unfortunate because he would have seen the whole movement of the 60s and uh, anyways, mm -hmm. but he didn't get to comment on that. He does. Um, he's most well known overall for his absurdist philosophy, which he sort of starts to lay out in the myth of Sisyphus. Um, the Stranger is a work of absurdist fiction, um, but he lays out the philosophy itself, which he would take issue with me calling it sort of a system of philosophy, but whatever. Um, we're not going to nitpick that much. Um, the Myth of Sisyphus was first published in French in 1942 and English in 1955. The fact that it took 13 years kind of blows my mind. Um, but anyways, that's it. Anything to, that you want to make a point on before we dive into the actual content? No, no. I mean, I guess the one thing we would we would talk about, even though in, in, in the intro we've been a little bit critical of Camus, and that is unfortunate because of his unfortunate death um, in a car accident. What we've seen from uh, a lot of critical thinkers and philosophers and so on and so forth is the evolution of their thoughts over time. And mm -hmm. he did not get that opportunity because his life was cut short. Right. So we should make mention of that, that there is mm -hmm. the potential, especially when you mention him maybe being able to see some of the post-colonial movements that came um, shortly after his death right. or the global 60s. And of course, the movement, uh, various progressive movements around the world perhaps that would have influenced his thinking and his philosophies going forward. And we would have maybe seen some sort of evolutionary development of those. And we didn't get that opportunity. Yeah. So not to mention like the maturation, I guess, of post-colonial philosophy, Correct. That, you know, that he really didn't get to experience either. Yeah, for sure. Right. Um, okay. So jumping in, we're just going to go really section by section. I'll provide a brief overview of his goal that he talks about in the preface, and then we're going to go break it down section by section. Um, so he talks about, this is from the preface, quote, for me, the myth of Sisyphus marks the beginning of an idea which I was to pursue in the rebel. It attempts to resolve the problem of suicide as the rebel attempts to resolve that of murder. So he's, the subject really, the myth of Sisyphus is suicide. It's kind of the overarching constant that he is dealing with, um, which we'll get to in much more detail, obviously, in a second. He later says, does existence's absurdity require one to escape it through hope or suicide? This is what must be clarified, hunted down, and elucid elucidated while brushing aside all the rest. Does the absurd dictate death? So this is framing, like I talked about, we want to do the rebel because that's where he talks about revolution. 
it's a, the subtitle I think is an essay, essays on man and revolt or an essay on man and revolt or something like that. So we want to talk about that because that's what we're all about. But first, before he gets to revolution, he gets to individual suicide as a result of the absurd. And that's what he's going on in the myth of Sisyphus. Um, he says the subject of this essay is precisely this relationship between the absurd and suicide, the exact degree to which suicide is a solution to the absurd. So he's basically asking the question, since life is meaningless, is justified, is suicide justified? His conclusion, spoiler alert, is that it is not. And his whole project in the myth of Sisyphus is working this out. How do people respond to the absurd and why? And is suicide a valid response? Um, he hasn't Obviously, we'll go into what the absurd is, if you aren't familiar. Okay, first section of the book, it's called An Absurd Reasoning. And then the first uh, second heading is Absurdity and Suicide. So he's jumping right into it, right? What is this about? And he, he's bold enough to claim that suicide is the fundamental philosophical question. Clearly, this gets critiqued uh, by philosophers throughout time. But he says, quote, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. I would argue theology. I would argue theology as well. Obviously, yeah. Um, yeah. Again, this whole idea that um, whether we're talking about like the absurd life, and of course, it's meaningless or meaningfulness, I guess, depending on your perspective, mm -hmm. or what we perceive might be through our ethically constitutive narratives, the afterlife. Suicide is always kind of one of those those subjects that we like to dance around, and I think it's very important that he here in the 1940s, again, giving like the context of what's going on in the world at this time. Um, which we might argue from his perspective, colonial Algeria during World War II, et cetera, you, you might not get much more absurd than that. Um, yeah. And yeah. so I think, I think the context matters a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, I didn't mean to butt in, but. Well, and it's important that he says, even if you don't believe in God, so he says like you might be, you know, you might not commit suicide because it's a sin and blah, blah, blah. But he says, even if you don't believe in God, which he did not, that still suicide isn't a valid option. That's basically right. his conclusion, right? right? Okay. Then he gives us a sentence that I think kind of, or two, I guess it's two sentences technically, that kind of sums up the absurd uh, really well early on, though he'll get into much more depth later on. He says, quote, I don't know whether this world has a meaning that transcends it, but I know that I do not know that meaning and that, that it is impossible for me just now to know it. That's a pretty good explanation of the absurd. And I like to contrast it versus, uh, you know, existentialism, which is that life doesn't have any inherent meaning and that we must find the meaning ourselves. That's very, very like distilled version, right? Camus well, argues the absurdist philosophy is that it has no meaning and it will never have meaning and we need to give up on even ever finding any meaning whatsoever. And that's the absurd approach to life. The next book section is Absurd Walls. Um, and this is kind of a long quote I'm gonna read, but I think this is a really crucial one because it explains the discovery of the absurd. So here we go, quote, dying involuntarily implies that you have recognized even instinctively the ridiculous character of that habit, the absence of any profound reason for living, the insane character of that daily agitation and the uselessness of suffering. It happens that the stage sets collapse. Rising streetcar, rising streetcar, four hours in the office or the factory, meal, streetcar, four hours of work, meal, sleep, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, according to the same rhythm, 
This path is, path is easily followed most of the time. So he's saying this is our life, right? We basically get up, work, eat, work, go to bed, repeat, rinse and repeat daily, right? Quote, but one day the why arises and everything begins in that wariness tinged with amazement. Begins, this is important. Wariness comes at the end of the acts of a mechanical life, but at the same time, it inaugurates the impulse of consciousness. It awakens consciousness and provokes what follows. What follows is the gradual return into the chain, or it is the definitive awakening. At the end of the awakening comes in time the consequence, suicide or recovery. In itself, wariness has something sickening about it. Here I must conclude that it is good. For everything begins with consciousness, and nothing is worth anything except through it. There is nothing original about these remarks, but they are obvious that it is enough for a while during a sketchy reconnaissance in the origins of the absurd. Mere anxiety, as Heidegger says, is at the source of everything. What are your thoughts on that one? I think it's interesting. I like the term mechanical life, the idea mm -hmm. of rinse and repeat. Um, and, and, and funny enough, like we've done a number of different um, episodes on mid 20th century thinkers looking at it through like this industrial technocratic lens. We've looked at Marcuse and we've looked at uh, Morris and so on and so forth. And, and their commentary on this Camus kind of falling in line here with his mm -hmm. critique of the society, but not going as, as much into the material culture, but more the ideal in this case. And what that means once we come to the realization uh, well, he didn't use the term in this quote of the absurdity of this repetitive process. And I think the problem here, well, not even necessarily the problem, but I think the question he's trying to get us to consider is once we become aware of this absurdity, and he says it specifically, what do we do with this awareness? Mm -hmm. Well, once we realize it's absurd, then life has no meaning. Do we end it? Of course, he's going to say no, but what does recovery look like? That's the term he uses. Mm -hmm. We're going to consider recovery, but is recovery merely becoming a cog within this, this repetitive system again? It's mechanical. Like that's the term he's using. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm interested in as this work progresses. What sure. is recovery? What does recovery mm -hmm. look like for him? Is it, it's not enlightenment. He's not using this term as we would have in perhaps our past episodes on Taoism or Sufism or Buddhism or whatever the enlightenment is, is, is not something that we're looking to achieve. It's actually, mm -hmm. I don't know, dare I say, maybe going back into the cave if we're using Plato's allegory? What do you oh, think? For sure. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what he would say. And we'll get to that more later on when he talks about the religious responses, right? I mean, that's what they all are, whether it's, right. you know, Christianity or Taoism, this, this hope, right, which we'll get to in a second. Good. I like this quote, and this is shortly after, a few pages after the one I just read, and it's really short. He just says, from the moment absurdity is recognized, it becomes passion, the most harrowing of all, which I really like, just this idea that like once you realize it, it's terrifying, right? You can't just put the genie back in the bottle, right? You have, you're forced to confront the absurdity of life and the meaninglessness once you become conscious of it, which I really like. Okay. I think, yeah, I mean, he's talking a little bit, perhaps even you can make allusions to the more modern term midlife crises for various mm -hmm. people and what we do with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now it's understand. It's important to understand the three pieces of Camus like argument, his main philosophy, because this helps under helps us understand his logic. Essentially, this is if you ever heard the term tripartite, right, which is like in art, a tripartite is a painting that has three parts. 
that kind of fit together. They're separate like panels. Um, but in philosophy, it's really common for people like Hegel is the one that really made it famous, right? For philosophers to have three parts of their philosophy that interact in some way. So this is what it is for uh, Camus. I'm going to read a quote and then we'll go through each one. He says, the irrational, the human nostalgia, and the absurd that is born of their encounter these are the three characters in the drama that must necessarily end with all the logic of which an ex ex existence is capable. So there's three, the irrational, human nostalgia, and the absurd. And these are important um, for us to understand his logic because I think people get lost on the ways that you can respond to the absurd. If you don't understand these three things, then they don't really make sense. So let's go through each. The first is the irrational. Essentially, the universe is irrational. It escapes all total, full, absolute explanation, right? So this is really the first thing is that for Camus, the universe cannot be explained. There is no way of thinking that can explain the universe in its totality in a way that satisfies us. And so he said, here's some quotes, right? He says, so the science that was to teach me everything ends up in a hypothesis. I realize that if through science I can seize phenomena and enumerate them, I cannot, for all that, apprehend the world, right? I had that one, I think, highlighted in green because I love that quote. That's so fire that people think that, well, science can explain everything. And he says, no, it can seize phenomena and enumerate them. Basically, it can quantitate things, right? It can count them, etc. But it doesn't really serve to help us understand the world, right? That philosophy does that. And we've talked about this extensively in other videos and in our courses, right? This idea of scientism and, you know, using rationality to the extreme to try to explain the universe, it's not possible, right? It falls short. It's great for tackling, obviously, maybe perhaps climate change or, 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 or pandemics or whatever, mm -hmm. but it's not answering some of those larger questions. So again, well, I mean, like, that's a perfect example of like, it's really good at quantifying climate yeah. change, but it's absolutely horrible for convincing people to take action accordingly. Right. It falls up flat on its face. Right. For that. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's 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 what he really wants to dig into. Mm -hmm. So this isn't necessarily a science bashing comment by us or Camus, really. Mm -hmm. It's the idea yeah. that science can only take us so far until you start digging into the ideals and philosophies um, and the way people are thinking, mm -hmm. especially because, when they come into the realizations of the absurd, which right. science can't answer the absurd. Yep. He says, you give me the choice between a description that is sure, but that teaches me nothing and hypotheses that claim to teach me, but that are not sure. I love framing science in that way, right? Yeah. You give me a description that is sure, like science can describe things in ways that are certain, but it cannot explain things in ways that are certain. It can only hypothesize. Okay, cool. So he basically says the universe has no meaning and there are no kind of systems of knowledge that can explain the universe in full. That is number one of his three parts of his philosophy. He goes next, human nostalgia, which is really a fancy way for saying we desire, we require meaning as human beings. We require an explanation. So he says, quote, that nostalgia for unity, that appetite for the absolute illustrates the essential impulse of the human drama. So long, and I'm jumping ahead 12 pages here. This is another quote, quote, so long as the mind keeps silent in the motionless, uh, motionless world of its hopes, everything is reflected and arranged in the unity of its nostalgia. But with its first move, this world cracks and tumbles. An infinite number of shimmering fragments is offered to the understanding. And he later refers this to 
as our appetite for understanding, human beings' appetite for understanding. We want a full explanation of our existence, of the universe, etc. He argues essentially this is a deep-seated human desire. We want our questions to be answered. We want the why, but the universe and human beings specifically are unable to provide answers to those main questions. It can never be fully, wholly, absolutely understood. So we Which is why too many people fall prey to like theology in that regard is because exactly. it answers it answers those questions in some cases as simplistically as possible, but it states mm-hmm. this need. And yep. that's what he's really after. It doesn't, it can't be proven or disproven. It's not necessarily accurate. I mean, you can make right. up any set of stories to get people, but as long as you're answering these questions, people at least feel sated. They have an understanding of, um, of really time and place and moving yep. forward. Yeah. And he's going to obviously critique that, that, that turn that people take, he'll critique heavily in just a few minutes. So we now have two, right? We have the universe is inexplicable completely, but human beings have a deep-seated drive for full explanation of our existence, right? Those are two. And he says, as a result of the relationship between these things, the absurd is born. The absurd results from the knowledge that I cannot reconcile, quote, these two certainties, my appetite for the absolute and for unity and the impossibility of reducing this world to a rational and reasonable principle. The in ability to reconcile those two irreconcilable things is the absurd, gives birth to the absurd. So the example he gives of like, you know, the streetcar, four hours at work, this mundane existence that one day we will wake up and ask why that is the consciousness that will give us the awareness of the absurd, that we can never have the answers to these questions. So there's those three things that Camus argues cannot be none, neither of those three, neither, none of those three things can be explained away. We can't explain away the fact that the universe cannot be fully explained and our existence cannot be fully explained. We cannot explain away human beings' absolute desire for the answering of existential questions. And we can't explain the third, which is the absurd that results from those three. Those are going to become important because he talks about like truth and logic, etc., later on. We have to understand that for him, those are his truths. Also, I want to say, I meant to say this in the beginning, this isn't a traditional philosophical work. He doesn't go through and make logical arguments creating a philosophical system. That's not what Camus is about, basically because he's against philosophical systems. He's against that level of rationality. That goes against the absurd, which he'll explain better on in a few minutes. So this isn't right. Like you're like, well, how are those truths? He hasn't done a lot of work to explain that. That's not his gig. That's not what Camus is after here. So just understand that going in. All right. Next section of the book is philosophical suicide. So basically now he switches to, okay, existence is absurd. What do we do about that? How do we then approach life with this knowledge? Which I think many people probably this will ring true, right? We know that there's no meaning. How do we approach this life now? So he says, you know, some people leave, some people stay, right? And the leaving for him is suicide, which is what he's investigating in this work altogether. He says, quote, to say that that climate is deadly scarcely amounts to playing on words. Living under that stifling sky forces one to get away or to stay. The important thing is to find out how people get away in the first case and why people stay in the second case. This is how I define the problem of suicide and the possible interests in the conclusions of existential 
philosophy. So he says one path is exit and the ultimate exit is suicide, right? If I judge that a thing is true, I must preserve it. If I attempt to solve a problem, at least I must not by that very solution conjure away one of the terms of the problem. So he's, he's here, he's talking about the three things, right? He's saying the problem of the absurd cannot be solved by doing away with one of those things. We can't do away with the fact that with the universe and existence and the fact that it's meaningless. We can't do away with human existence, meaning our insatiability for answers. And as a result of the fact that we can't get rid of those two things, we also then can't get rid of those a third. Those are three truths for Camus, three variables in this equation that cannot be done away with. And that's important later on when he gets to his explanations for how people attempt to do this. Um, so this is him setting the stage essentially for later philosophies that have answered the questions, the attempted to explain the universe and why those are not satisfactory answers, um, essentially. And carrying this absurd logic to its conclusion, this is Camus again, I must admit that the struggle implies a total absence of hope which has nothing to do with despair, a continual rejection, which must not be confused with renunciation and a conscious dissatisfaction, which would, must not be compared to immature unrest. Everything that destroys conjures away or exorcises these requirements and to begin with consent, which overthrows divorce, ruins the absurd and devaluates that, the attitude that may then be proposed. The absurd has meaning only insofar as it is not agreed to. So I just wanna stress again, He's not a traditional existentialist that thinks that we life is inherently meaningless and then we should find meaning in life for ourselves. He says life is inherently meaningless and we must confront that full on, that we will never find meaning in life. So he describes the difference between what he calls like plain suicide and philosophical suicide. Plain suicide is killing yourself right? Let's just be frank about it. That's what he calls plain. And then he talks extensively about philosophical suicide, which is the section that we're in of the book right now. He says, through an odd reasoning, starting out from the absurd over the ruins of reason in a closed universe limited to the human, they, the philosophers, deify what crushes them and find reason to hope in what impoverishes them. That forced hope is religious in all of them. It deserves attention. So he says, you know, Jared mentioned the religious turn, right, to find meaning in what is that has no meaning. Camus obviously has a huge problem with that. He says, the first thing that philosophers do is abandon reason and rationality and return to God. So I want to stress, this isn't like the theology, the origins of theology. We would argue that this is a relatively kind of modern turn where, you know, Nietzsche announces that God is dead the existential philosophers then go from that position and return back to God. And here he's talking about like Kierkegaard as an example. And I think, what's the other one? Husserl, is that who he talks about? I can't remember right now, but Kierkegaard for sure, I remember is in there. And so he says, these uh, are the Heidegger, philosophers. Heidegger's anxiety, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. These are the philosophers that have realized the absurd and recognized the absurd, but they take a turn back to God as the explanation of, the universe. He says, this is a turn that cannot be done because it violates the truths of his tripartite, his three things, right? This explains away the irrationality of the universe because God transcends all. The transcendence of God provides the reconciliation in two ways. First, it provides rationality, right? It explains the universe because God, you, you, we all know the basic fundamentals of this, right? 
God can explain things in ways that we as mere mortals can't understand. So God provides the meaning of the universe and we don't understand it. It doesn't actually provide the meaning for us. God itself provides that meaning. The existence of God provides meaning for us. Which is one of the great cop-outs, but it, as long mm -hmm. as it's hitting those answers, it doesn't matter. We don't care. Right. That even, even as non-detailed or non-descript as that answer is, that satisfies enough people. It doesn't have to be. So when we, you were talking earlier about this, like understanding of, of existence and understanding of the universe, that doesn't necessarily mean like it needs to be a complete, like categorized, like positivist mm -hmm. understanding of it. Merely saying uh, God wills it or because God said so or because God, it, that's enough for a lot of people. Right. But for Camus, that doesn't actually answer any of the three, right? Mm -hmm. That you can't fully understand and acknowledge that the universe is inexplicable as a truth and then return to or manufacture this deity that provides an explanation of that. That's like an impossible, illogical turn, right? Camus would argue for sure that you can't explain away one of the three. And here you've explained away the fact that the universe is inexplicable by creating a transcending authority, in this case, God, that can somehow explain it all, that exists outside of each of us, which he says that's nonsense, right? That, that, that can't happen. That can't be the solution. The second way that philosophers approach this, instead of transcending God above all, is to transcend rationality and reason above all. They, they de deify essentially rationality itself. This is like the ultimate extreme positivist approach. He says, quote, it must be repeated that the reasoning developed in this essay leaves out altogether the most widespread spiritual attitude of our enlightened age, the one based on the principle that all is region, reason, which aims to explain the world, right? So he says, in this case, it's basically extreme scientism and positivism and just uber rationality that reason and science can explain everything. Now, the people that believe that, that take this turn don't actually have the explanation. They just have such faith in the deification of science. They have such faith in science that they would say something to akin to like, science will someday be able to explain everything in the universe. That science fundamentally has at its disposal the ability to do this. And just because it can't right now doesn't mean that it won't be able to forever, that it can do this. It has the capability of doing this. And as such, they use that, this transcendence of science to explain away the inexplicable of the universe, even though they don't have the actual explanation, uh, you know, in their toolbox. Thoughts on this? No, I'm, I mean, just a little bit. Like the idea, I guess, and I'll admittedly say I was uh, a little bit confused in this this piece here, uh, the philosophical mm -hmm. argument of rationalization and reason. I guess I'm curious as to what questions specifically are meant to be answered philosophically on this front that science has not answered. Is there a preview there? I'm not saying, and I'm, I'm not coming from the point of departure that science has answered all of these questions, mm -hmm. but I mean, one could, just like we we're, just like I argued that maybe religion oversimplifies a lot of the questions and people are satisfied, satisfied with that oversimplification. Some might say science has also answered them oversimplified. Oh, you are here, of I think course, that's Camus' argument. Right? Yeah, you're, you're here because yeah. whatever, you're here to procreate, pass on genes, etc. That that might be more of a scientific argument, right? 
that. So, yeah, I think his point is that it's the same, actually, his argument for religion is that it doesn't actually provide meaning for our lives. It doesn't provide meaning for our existence. It doesn't answer that question. Neither does religion, right? Religion just says, well, we as essentially mortal beings can't understand it, but have faith, have faith that there is a being that exists that can understand it, right? But that's where the absurd comes in, because then in both of these, you're like, okay, well, once I've achieved X, Y, or Z, based on these two, this dichotomy here, then yes, what is left for me to do? So in a religious context, I've accepted whatever it is for whatever religious doctrine we're talking mm-hmm. about, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, or there is only God, there, uh, <laughs> there is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet or anything along those lines. Well, then after that, then what, what else is there? I've done, I've done my part. I've done my due diligence. Obviously in those narratives, a, a whole host of other things are added that are more or less tasks or things that you're supposed to do mm-hmm. to maintain. But in theory, once you've done that, you're done. And there, there is no more meaning after that to life. So what but that is your meaning, that's that, the the, that is your meaning, right? Like yeah. and that if you've ever, I mean, you have, right. You've talked to Christians or whatever that like their entire meaning for existing is to serve God will, et cetera. Right. You've all heard the terms that go along with, which this. is completely absurd. But mm-hmm. the, then we get to the idea of science and the absurd there as well. Once again, I'm using my own generic version, not Camus here, mm-hmm. but let's say like the meaning of life from a more like, again, positivist standpoint is to um, grow, develop, pass on your genes. And then that's Progress, it, right? Like right. an octopus, yeah. right? Like an octopus. Once they're done passing on their genes and they raise those eggs, that's it. Mm-hmm. We know that. What keeps well, us I think that it's, it's, is that the yeah, I think you mentioned Marcuse earlier, which I hadn't even really connected mm-hmm. to this because yeah. he comes much after, clearly. Um, but it's, I mean, the, the idea of technology and rationality and Marcuse, using Marcuse as a context, I mean, it perfectly explains the meaning of, you know, our meaning is to further invent and further develop and increase new technologies and progress society, quote unquote, progress society. Right? We get completely wrapped up in the irrational rationality, right? I mean, it's progress for progress sake and so forth. If we've deified rationality and progress, then that itself becomes the meaning in our lives, which like, as you said, is completely ridiculous. And that's mechanical as well. Like he used Mm -hmm. in the earlier quote, that's, that is rolling a boulder up a hill over and over again. The point is, I think this will help maybe drive these two home, the religious and the uh, deification of rationality is that by taking that turn, having faith that you have abandoned the absurd position, you've lost consciousness, you no longer believe that in, that the absurd exists because you have given meaning to your life, right? Whether it's religion, whether it's rationality and reason and science, etc., you have abandoned the absurd position. And Camus argues that it's, it's not possible. We can't do that. The absurd is one of the three truths. We cannot explain it away. It must exist and we must constantly be conscious of it, that as someone that has faith in religion or that has deified rationality and science, that has faith there, that has taken this leap, that you've abandoned the absurd position. You no longer believe that it exists because you have reconciled the two things that are completely irreconcilable, right? He calls this the leap, both of these two things, the leap. You've taken a logical leap by performing these, either of these two and he says this leap, it's not possible. You violated the, the rules of the game, essentially. You cheated, basically. And he compares both of these things as the same, which I really like. Both God and the deif- deification of reason are essentially the same. The end is the same. And this is Camus, quote, 
It is futile to be amazed by the apparent paradox that leads thought to its own negation by the opposite paths of humiliated reason and triumphal reason. From the abstract god of Husserl, oh, there he is, I was right, to the dazzling god of Kierkegaard, the distance is not so great. Reason and the irrational lead to the same preaching. So he's saying the leap is the same, whether it's, you know, God or whether it's the triumphant reason, he says, it's the same thing. You're just deifying something else. You've transcended something else above human reasoning and the meaningless of the universe and you've oppressed yourself as a result. And as such, you've abandoned the absurd position, which Camus says is not possible. We can't, we can't explain that away. That's not a thing. You can't sit here and look me in the face and say, the universe completely, we cannot find meaning there. We can't explain it all. Oh, however, I'm going to invent this new thing that transcends everything. And we're going to have faith that that can explain it all. He says, that's a completely illogical leap. Like we can't do that. That's not, that's nonsense, right? So that's philosophical suicide. There can be, yeah, this is good. There can be no question of masking the evidence, of suppressing the absurd by denying one of the terms of its equation. It is essential to know whether one can live with it or whether, on the other hand, logic commands one to die of it. I'm not interested in philosophical suicide, but rather in plain suicide. So he said, I'm not interested in either of those arguments because you've essentially violated the, the, the equation. You violated the rules of this you know, logic that we're having here. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in actual suicide, right? Do Must we die as a result of the absurd existence? Then he goes on to absurd freedom. This is the next section of the book. He says, is one going to die, escape by the leap, rebuild a mansion of ideas and forms to one's own scale? Is one, on the contrary, going to take up, take up the heart-rendering and marvelous wager of the absurd? So, we can die, we can commit suicide, we can escape by the leap, which is the two things that he has just talked about. We can rebuild a mansion of ideas and forms to one's own scale. I like this one, right? Because it's basically, you know, constructing ideological apparatuses to provide us false meaning, false answers to these problems. Or are we going to take up the heart rendering and marvelous wager of these, uh, uh, of the absurd? So basically there's three responses, absurd, uh, death, hope, or revolt. So death is suicide, right? He says, suicide is like the leap is acceptance at its extreme. Everything's over and man returns to his essential history. But he says, I mean, essentially, this isn't the logical conclusion either because you are then removing one of the variables of the equation, that you're removing man essentially from the equation by committing suicide on an individual level. Hope, he says, this is escaping by the leap uh, as he's mentioned uh, uh, above, right? We hope that God provides the answers. We hope that science can provide all the answers. He says that's not it. Or third is revolt. The theme of permanent revolution is thus carried out into individual experience. Living is keeping the absurd alive. Keeping it alive is, above all, contemplating it. One of the only coherent philosophical positions is thus revolt. It is a constant confrontation between man and his own obscurity. It is an insistence upon an impossible transparency. It challenges the world anew every second. Though I want to stress here, he's not talking about political revolt, um, which he has much critique for both here, uh, I guess a little bit here, and definitely once we get to the rebel, he will have a lot to say about that. Um, It's not fighting for a cause or fighting for some future, right? He's talking here about absurd revolt. And in that, he's talking about your very existence and maintaining your consciousness of the revolt and facing it, you know, directly head on 
that is revolt, not like a political grand, you know, hope. Although there are some very interesting corollaries between these three terms and what obviously I was thinking, being more into the political revolutionary history of of, of the world, was um, exit loyalty and voice. That's I read into that a little bit. That was probably me reading into a little bit because obviously that's specific to political revolutions, but it's there, right? Suicide being the exit, loyalty mm-hmm. being uh, attached to making that leap, that hope, and then of course, yep. um, voice being revolt itself. No, yeah, I thought that too for sure. When he th- when he mentions exit, right? I thought the, the exact same thing. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, I have a side note in my notes that like there's so much commentary here on political movements. Like he critiques authoritarian communism. Like, I mean, he critiques every single like, you know, revolution throughout history. That's what the rebel is. So we're going to save that for right now until we get to the rebel. There's no point in us having it now because we're going to do a series of episodes uh, on that work. So just know that that's there and we're intentionally ignoring it because we're going to get there. Um, So what is absurd freedom? This is his section, right? That's the title of this section. So what is it? He says, I understand then why the doctrines that explain everything to me also debilitate me at the same time. I have nothing to do with the problem of metaphysical liberty. Knowing whether or not man is free doesn't interest me. I can experience only my own freedom. This is really good. So for Camus, abstract notions of freedom mean nothing. So for example, like the Rousseauian, like liberal construct of freedom that cannot be experienced by an individual. I cannot experience, I, I cannot experience this abstract notion, right? It can only exist in my mind as a concept. I can only experience individual freedom on an individual scale. So it says like, that means nothing. I, I, I don't care about any of those things. I'm only interested in my own individual freedom. He says, this is why I cannot act lost in the glorification or the mere definition of a notion which eludes me and which loses its meaning as soon as it goes beyond the frame of reference of my individual experience. I cannot understand what kind of freedom would be given me by a higher being. I have lost a sense of hierarchy. The only conception of freedom I can have is that of the prisoner of the individual in the mindset of the state. The only one I know is freedom of thought and action. Now, if the absurd cancels all my chances of eternal freedom, it restores and magnifies, on the other hand, my freedom of action. That privation of hope and future means an increase in man's availability. So as soon as I give up hope, as soon as I give up this notion of freedom, these abstract concepts of freedom, I realize the true freedom lies in myself as an individual and my action as an individual. I can now act. Once I face the absurd, give up all concepts of abstract freedom, I am now free to actually act as a conscious being in my life on a day-to-day basis. And that is absurd freedom. Do you have any thoughts there? I guess part of it um, makes me think a little bit of Sterner, of which we're still doing a little bit of research, so we can't mm-hmm. go back and really uh, illuminate that right this second. But I hope yeah. that some of our, our listeners are, are making those connections. We do mm-hmm. have episodes on Sterner coming up. Um, and some might even argue this um, rationalizes what we might be calling egoist, egoist nihilism mm-hmm. or ego. Yeah. But, but I don't know that that was Camus' main goal, but you can definitely see there's influence there. Um, yeah. If that makes sense. So that's like what I wrote I, in my notes, like 90% of this section in myth of Sisyphus is straight Sterner. Right. But like you said, we're going out of order. Once we get back to Sterner, you, it'll be clear. Um, yeah. He definitely, you know, influenced the existentialists and Camus, yeah, for sure. Right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so much of this section and a lot of the myth of Sisyphus, actually, uh, there are sections in there that like you can clearly see Sterner's influence 
uh, for sure. Okay. Um, so that's absurd freedom. Uh, then he talks about passion, which is important because it's going to come up in the next section. Um, he says, the present and succession of presence before a constantly conscious soul is the ideal of this absurd man. Now, he's talking like temporally here, right? The present. We live in the present. So I'm going to read that sentence again because I had to read it like five times before I realized that's what he was talking about. The present and the succession of presence before a constantly conscious soul is the ideal of the absurd man. But the word ideal rings false in this connection. It is not even his vocation, but merely the third consequence of his reasoning. Having started from an anguished awareness of the inhuman, the meditation on the absurd returns at the end of its itinerary to the very heart of the passionate flames of human revolt. So he says there's three consequences of the absurd. Revolt, freedom, passion. So we must revolt against the absurd and face it head on. That gives us freedom as individuals to act. And as a result, then we realize our passion lies in the day-to-day, second-by-second, present and passing of presence over and over and over again. We can live in the moment as truly free individuals. Now, I want to stress this isn't meaning. He never uses that term in this context. It doesn't provide us meaning. It doesn't provide us sort of this cosmic metaphysical meaning. It doesn't explain the universe, but it can. It's temporarily fulfilling our passions as human beings that we have discovered as confrontation and interaction with the absurd. Okay, thoughts on that? I'm going to sound obviously uh, heretical to both people that buy into like all of these notions of, but from Camus as well as, um, well, to be blunt, Taoists here to try and make this connection. But some of this um, did kind of remind me of that idea of existing in the moment. Like that was a very Taoist principle, obviously under completely different auspices. Um, if we want to go back to, of course, answering those questions more philosophically or in this case, maybe spiritually. But those were the connections. That's where my mind went is it mm-hmm. instantly reminded me of like the eternal Tao and not necessarily bothering with it, but existing within it. Yep. I mean, uh, I think there's a, that, that connection is valid. And like, you know, we had episodes talking about like, yeah. is Taoism even a religion, right? It, yeah, doesn't, I would argue it's not. it doesn't seek to answer the questions mm-hmm. the same way that like, you know, Kierkegaard, the turns that they make, it's not yeah. the same, right? So yeah, I think that connection is fully valid yep. that, you know, yeah. I, I don't even have an argument with that at all. I think that that's, that's a good connection there. And I don't think that, let's say we, you know, we live a Taoist existence. I don't think that's that, that far of a jump from the absurd existence. And in fact, I think that they might be two in the same. One well, and that's community. why we spent all that time making those connections with Taoism and, and anarchism, obviously, exactly. very 100%. specifically. Um, and, and, and not to spoil this episode or the episode that's coming after it, but there's definitely going to be some, some, some connectivity here between this philosophy and um, its impact on anarchist thought. So, mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I just want to read, actually, now that you've said that, it reminded me, I have a note here that I skipped over. He says, having started from the anguished awareness of the inhuman, the meditations of the absurd returns at the end of its itinerary to the very heart of the passionate flames of human revolt. This context, the flames, right? There's a really good book that we're going to talk about once we get there in the chronological order of nihilism called Blessed is the Flame. And it's a book about anarcho-nihilism. And like, I'll be honest, just personally, it is what sent me down this journey to revisit nihilism and revolutionary nihilism and so forth. I just randomly came across that book, got two or three years ago or something and read it and was like, 
I need more of this, right? I need to start at the beginning with nihilism and go down this path as deeply as I can. And then that's why we're even here talking about this. Um, so we're going to do one on that book too. But this flame, right, is used as a metaphor throughout this, you know, anarchism and nihilism and so forth, um, existentialism and absurdism uh, and, and on and on, which is important. And I like he says here that the absurd life is not easy. It's incredibly challenging. He says, quote, obeying the flame is both the easiest and the hardest thing to do. This is difficult, right? But if we can truly do this at all times, we are, you know, find our passion and live this life and are free in the moment. So it's both easy and incredibly, incredibly challenging. He says, quote, it is bad to stop. Hard to be satisfied with a single way of seeing, to go without contradiction, perhaps the most subtle of all spiritual forces. The preceding merely defines a way of thinking, but the point is to live. So his next section in the book is how does an absurdist live their life? What does the absurdist revolt uh, look like? So he's already basically concluded suicide is not an option. So he's answered his question in the myth of Sisyphus. Is suicide an option? He says no, because it violates the rules of the equation, right? This is not possible. It eliminates man as a seeking, a, a being seeking answers. Suicide ends that, right? So it's not it's not valid. So how do we live then as absurdists? Um, he talks about morality, which I like a lot. And I use this quote a lot when I'm talking with people who are asking questions about nihilism or maybe they're self-professed nihilism or they say, you know, this idea that everything is permitted, right? Which comes from Nietzsche's concepts really in like, when we're talking about anarchism and people, you know, view it as like the purge, where if there were no morals, if God is dead, right, wouldn't everyone just be like raping and pillaging and slaughtering people in the streets, etc. I love the way that Camus presents this. So I'm going to read his quote. He says, the absurd does not liberate, it binds. It does not authorize all actions. Everything is permitted does not mean that nothing is forbidden. The absurd merely confirms confers an equivalence on the consequences of those actions. It does not recommend crime, for this would be childish, but it restores to remorse its futility. Likewise, if all experiences are indifferent, that of duty is as legitimate as any other. One can be virtuous through a whim. So he, he actually doesn't believe in traditional morality, right? But he says that doesn't mean that everything is permitted because to say like, well, then murder is fine, well, you've elevated then murder above any other action. He says what it does is it makes every action fully equal and that we must also face the consequences for our actions, not according to morality. He says later on, there's a quote where he talks about, you know, I don't believe that anyone is guilty, but I do believe that there are consequences for action. There are people that are responsible, but there are never people who are guilty because guilty re requires a moral judgment. It requires an ethical judgment, but people are responsible for their actions. Then he goes on to the next section of his book is Don Juanism, which is kind of a weird like title. I thought that was interesting. But he talks about here, he's talking about absurdist passion. And so uh, do you want to talk about who Don, the, the myth of Don Juan for a second? Because he actually doesn't explain what this, you know, literary character is he just kind of jumps into it and assumes that readers know so do you want to do that or you want me to you can I, I okay so don juan if you don't know the story is like this literary figure and basically his whole life is he is a womanizer so he goes from woman to woman you know uh 
sleeping around with various women. That's the story in a nutshell. We're not going to be here for hours explaining it, right? No, oh, I so, thought you were going to go into more depth than that. I think. No, that's <laughs> I think it. I think that's all we need to get to. All our Camus listeners know point. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, is there something when you asked me? I was like, is there something? No, like that's all. There's no. Yeah, we don't need a deeper meaning okay. yet. Right. All right. Yeah. All right. We're good. <laughs> Let's keep moving. Like, um, okay. Camus basically says that Don Juan, this character, is an absurdist hero because he lives via his passions. Now. Most people critique that story as like, oh my God, he's a misogynist, like womanizer, violating women, et cetera. Like, and I that did mean violating, like raping them. That's not what he does. Um, but he like, you know, goes from woman to woman, finding love essentially. But he says, you know, he's the absurdist hero according to Camus because he's fully conscious of his actions and his consequences. And he seeks the quality, uh, sorry, he seeks the quantity of experience. Um, as Camus suggests, the saint, on the contrary, who tends toward quality. So he says, quote, it is not through lack of love that Don Juan goes from woman to woman. It is ridiculous to present him as a mystic on the quest of total love. But it is indeed because he loves them with the same passion and each time with his whole self that he must repeat his gift and his profound quest. Whence each woman hopes to give him what no one has ever given him, each time they're utterly wrong and merely manage to make him feel the need of that repetition. So he's saying it's not as if like Don Juan is seeking love. He's saying he gives himself fully to each of the women, right? Each of the women that he enters into relationship with is a full love. Don Juan gives them his, his entire self and each love is a different love, right? And it's a new and different and et cetera. Yeah, that's it. I have a note here that this is when he first mentions ethics of quantity, which I really like as a concept. He says, you know, most people that have taken a turn away from the absurd believe in the quality of existence. So like the best life, living the best life that we can possibly live. But Camus says that that's not possible because in order for us to use the term best and us to deem a life and a way of living as better than another, we must have morals and values. And we, if we don't have values, then there can clearly be a, not a better and a worse. So that all that we can do is live in a quantity, uh, going after the quantity of existence, which is why Don Juan is this absurd hero, right? He's going after quantity. He's going after love and love and love over and over and over again, not seeking the ultimate love, but fulfilling his passion by doing it over and over and over and over again. He's seeking quantity. Camus calls this the ethics of quantity, that we should live and live as much as we possibly can, not live as best as we can, because living the best life, that's meaningless. We can't establish what that is uh, without values. So that's essentially Don Juanism. Anything else on that one? I have my own personal hangups with that. I didn't like that argument. I am a qualitative over quantitative type of person. I mean, very um, clearly it goes against like the modern idea of marriage and so forth. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't do marriage and all that. Yeah, other stuff, right. you know. But like for me personally, like, yes, like there are, I, I, I guess I'm limited here in terms of like, I would be critiqued. I do believe in some, some moral and ethical absolutes. They're not religiously or uh, scientifically informed. Uh, one might argue they, they, or maybe I, even I would argue they are inherent uh, or innate and uh, many of the other things, whether we're talking about philosophy or religion or statism or nationalism, they kind of obscure those over time and space. But for me, this is where I did get a little bit hung up with Camus because I do believe in the qualitative and I am well, understanding that it is attached to um limiting factors um 
that inform those morals and ethics. And those limiting factors are not necessarily aligned with this idea of the absurd. I'm willing to admit that, at least in terms of his philosophy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that the rest of this moving forward, I would personally consider like junk, but I, I did definitely take umbrage with this part for sure. So rather than having that discussion now, let's save it for Sterner when we'll talk yeah. about, you know, innate desires and stuff. I think we can frame that conversation better using Sterner's terminology. Yeah, because this terminology, like now. I said, threw me for a little bit of a loop. I definitely had mm -hmm. a problem with this part, but let's... I mean, we're talking about the, the post-structural argument already through Foucault is like, you know, believing that there are any innate morals and values requires us to transcend and deify a concept of human nature, right, etc. But Stirner absolutely destroys that in a way that I think is really compelling. So we'll save that conversation for Stirner. Right, which I'm willing to admit that that I have that deification of 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 morality and ethics within human nature, and and mm -hmm. in my own limitations have probably deified them. Willing to accept that. Next section here is drama. It's basically the actor, um, and so he says the actor is actually an absurd hero too. So he says the actor will die in three hours under the mask he has assumed today. Within three hours, he must experience and express a whole exceptional life. That is called losing oneself to find oneself. In those three hours, he travels the whole course of the dead end path in that the man in the audience takes a lifetime to cover. Um, in that short space of time, the actor makes the lives of the character come to life and die on 50 square yards of boards. Never has the absurd been so well illustrated or at such length. So he said, basically the actor lives an entire lifetime, you know, condensed down into two or three hours as he takes on this character and lives his emotions and like so forth. And as a result, it's a perfect example of the absurd confrontation right to existence because he has full consciousness of, you know, his life, his existence, et cetera, and makes the choice to, you know, adopt this other character for a very short period of time. And he talks in here, I don't think I wrote down this quote, but he talks about ephemeral fame, right? That the actor seats this very fleeting, you know, process of his craft and of the fame that is associated with it. And he must constantly be acting over and over and over again, if he is to, you know, remain successful and seek out this passion, you know, on and on. He seeks the ethics of quantity um, through his work. And so Camus says the actor also lives an absurdist existence. Obviously, this is a much longer section than we're going into, but I don't feel the need to go into depth for every single section. We'll be here for years. Um, anything else on that one? The celebration of the narcissist is all I can think of. No, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which again, for me, is where I'm. I'm starting to have a lot of problems moving forward. But let's let's keep going. It's not about my critiques of Camus. So, well, so explain that in more in depth. How so? Is that the celebration of the narcissist? So I guess where I'm at here, and and again, like if this is if this is the the so-called answer, which he might even debate whether there's any one singular defined answer. But if this is like the suggestion as we kind of go through this like philosophical exercise. Which by the way, I just want to point out, he's not saying that the, there's three things he lists. He's not saying those three things are the only way you can live. He's just saying these are right. three examples of an approach to the absurd. That's it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we're willing to, at least I'm willing to acquiesce, we are living within the absurd. So that mm -hmm. that's where we're at. So we're at the critique. But in terms of like suggestive ways of framing this, I guess what I'm seeing in these examples is any sort of lack of 
and I, and this is informed by the ethical and moral statements I had just made, any sort of understanding of a larger like social framework. And and this is where I do think Sterner really helps us in mm-hmm. framing like this more egoist, like myopic, self-interested understanding of how to exist within the absurd, which in and of itself, one might argue nihilism is ultimately self-interested. So I guess that's where I'm having a lot of the problems here is many of these suggestions, quote unquote, don't take anyone else into account except the individual thinker. Oh man, we could be here a long time on that. Which is my biggest problem with them. And that's why if we want to look at it practically, this is why he ends up being a middle of the road um, thinker or actor in terms of French colonization of Algeria, for example. This is, I mean, you never actually have to quote unquote, choose a side. You can, the only side you choose is your own. I think he would argue because... Yes, the last part of your sentence is key. The only side that you choose is your own. And I think he ends up choosing the middle because his own is the middle. But he does not fault the Algerians for their side, nor the French for their side. We, And that's where the critique comes in, right? Because we would say, well, he should definitely be critiquing the French for their side. But according to his philosophy, that's an impossibility, right? Because, and you said there's no accounting for like the social here, That's because the social, just like the liberal idea of freedom, is an abstract. It doesn't exist at the individual level, right? I can't experience society as an individual. I can only experience myself and my emotions and my own individual freedom and so forth. So I, as Don Juan, can only experience my passion. And I, as the actor, can only experience my experience as being that character and the fame that's associated with it, right? But you're right. We're bleeding so much into Sterner here that, yeah. Over even this simple term empathy, like, cause when we're talking about like the social, I guess I'm not even thinking about it in a larger, like state-based mm-hmm. abstract concept. I'm talking even like those that might be closest to me or the individuals that I actually do have these social relationships with, where does that fit into these suggestions? And I'm not well, saying so, I mean, this is the much bigger conversation that. about human nature, yeah. right? Right. Sterner argues, Camus doesn't really touch on it here, but Sterner, well, yeah, I mean, we can use the Don Juan example, even though he doesn't go into this in depth. We have a problem with the Don Juan example because of our morals in our current society. And we critique men like this, right? And women like this, that, but the problem is that's all based on our morality. If two people get together and give themselves fully to one another, who's to say that that being a one night thing or a one week thing isn't just as valuable as it being a 10 year or 20 year or a lifetime thing? Right. We have our we have our own opinions about the temporality of a relationship because of our ideologies. Right. These constructs that we've created to make ourselves feel more comfortable. But the man and the woman, obviously, I'm being, you know, heteronormative here and I apologize. But the two people entering into this relationship, because Don Juan existed in that time period, very clearly, the two people entering into this relationship, if they both give them give themselves to each other fully, that is the absurdist approach to the absurd. That is the absurdist existence. Neither one of them is being violated. Neither one of them is being done wrong, right? So the but empathy comes in. they're of themselves, not the people that they might be affecting around them. But there's only two people in this conversation that we're having right now, right? Let's simplify it. Neither of those people are being violated in any way. They are both giving themselves fully. They are both accepting the other fully. They both have empathy for the other as a result of their interaction in that interaction, right? So there's empathy there. 
because they're both giving themselves fully and they're both accepting fully. And the, the empathy and the joy comes from both the giving themselves and the accepting of the other. So it's a selfish act that brings more joy for both people involved. They're both being selfish. And as a result, they both are more fulfilled. In that specific moment. Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. So unless we can come up with a construct where like the love of these two people then offends someone else, well, that's not my problem or theirs, right? Agreed, 100%. And that, that, that's where I'm having some hangups. But yes, we're good. If the other person also lived according to the absurd, then they wouldn't be offended by two other people doing what they want to do, right? I mean, that's that's the thing. That We can't not offend everyone, right? Someone's going to be offended by two I, people. I guess I'm not even thinking about offended from like a marriage or a monogamy point of view. I'm talking about consequences that exist outside of that moment. Maybe procreation takes place. Maybe Don Juan's moved on by then. I'm talking about all the other circumstances that are not being taken into account with this very clear presentism, which is fine. I'm not... I'm but he's not saying that it's only in the present, right? He very clearly said earlier, the quote I read like twice well, because it took me a while to get it. Upon presence, upon right. presence. So yeah. maybe there is a child that's born and that's great. Then the approach changes and it's a repeti- new presence coming all along. Your child growing is just a, a complete every day is new. You know this as a father, right? Every day is new. The kid is changing all the time. Now all of a sudden I'm an entirely new person also. I'm a father. And that changes on a day-to-day, second-to-second basis, what that means for me and who I am as a person and so forth. We must be conscious of this change and, and confront that change on a daily basis. And that's well, the confronting absurd. that change would be suspension of the ego often, often. I can definitely speak from personal experience. What- well, and let's be clear, Camus is not an egoist. These are two different things. I think we're con- now we're sort of convoluting Stirner and Camus a little bit. He might be an egoist, but that's not his argument, right? His argument isn't as an egoist, right? Okay. This is not, we can't have that conversation until we do Sterner because Sterner is, we can't even call Sterner an egoist until we really break down what egoism is according to Sterner because it's not the same that most people use it today. It's not 100% self interest, which is what people, I mean, it is self interest, but it's not the vulgarized version of self interest that people use today. We'll get to that when we do the Sterner episode. I, I disagree. I, I want to go back to the narcissist comment. Because I, I don't think that you've explained how this is narcissism fully. When we're using the, let me go back here. The actor will die in three hours under the mask his, he has assumed today. Within three hours, he must experience and express a whole exceptional life. That is called uh, losing oneself to find oneself. In those three hours, he travels the whole, cur- uh, the whole course of the dead uh, dead end path that the man in the audience takes a lifetime to cover. In that short space of time, the actor makes the lives of the character uh, characters come to life and die on fifty uh, square yards of boards. Never has the absurd absurd been so well il- illustrated or at such length. In some respects, the actor is like the traveler by miming man as he, the actor, can be, and as he is, the actor has much in common with the other absurd individual, the traveler. Like him, he drains something and is constantly on the move. He is a traveler in time, and for the best, the hunted traveler pursued by souls. If ever the ethics of quantity could find sustenance, it is indeed on that strange stage. So I guess what I read into this is, A, kind of the rinse and repeat of living these multiple lives, these multiple presences, for fulfilling... I, I guess I'm reading into it himself over and over again, and maybe I'm reading into it a little bit of vanity. So these are my own personal inferences into this mm-hmm. quote. That's like the narcissistic addiction. That's what I'm reading into this. So yes, 
I get the life part and how that life is merely these multiple lives, I should say, that the actor gets to engage in are metaphorical for these presence upon presence upon presences. I guess I'm reading into the motivation of the actor in and of themselves. This is where the narcissism comes in. But is it narcissism or is it passion, right? Because that's what he talks about is the absurdist passion. I am from second to second seeking out things that, yes, make me feel good, that bring me pleasure, that fulfill my absurdist passion, right? I'm not looking, and I think the difference, there's not this grand, I don't find meaning in these things. I just fulfill my passion. Those are two very different things, right? I don't know. I'm not an actor because it provides meaning in my life. And it's this great thing that I'm doing over the course of my career to provide meaning in the universe, right? I am an actor if I'm an absurdist actor, like Camus explains, because I can experience a whole life in three hours. I can confront the absurd over a lifetime in three hours, right? Or whatever. And if people appreciate my effort, right? And it provides, it fulfills their passion to see me do this, then all the better, right? But he talks about absurdist art, which is a completely different thing later on, which we'll get to in a few minutes, right? But it's, it's not, I don't know if it's self-serving. It would be self-serving if you were explaining away the absurd. That would make you feel better. But confronting the absurd does not make you feel better. There is no, quote unquote, feeling better, because to feel better, you would need to find meaning in your action. And none of this is providing meaning. It's confronting the absurd over and over and over again and maintaining your consciousness of the lack of meaning in existence. Fair enough. Conquest. The last of his three examples of how to live, examples of how people have lived according to the absurd, he says the conqueror. The conqueror's response to the absurd is to consciously participate in history, even without the knowledge, with the knowledge that all is temporary. He says, quote, conscious that I can, can, cannot stand aloof from my time, I have decided to be an integral part of it. That is why I esteem the individual only because he strikes me as ridiculous and humiliated. Knowing that there are no victorious causes, I have a liking for the lost causes. They require an uncontaminated soul, equal to its defeat as to its temporary victories. For anyone who feels bound up with the world's fate, the clash of civilizations has something agonizing about it. I have made that anguish mine at the same time I wanted to join in. Same time that I wanted to join in. Basically, the conqueror, uh, you know, oh, this is coming. The conqueror seeks his passions much as the lover does but his passion is the high of the conquest. The conqueror are merely those among men who are conscious enough of their strength to be sure of living constantly on those highs and fully aware of that grandeur. And I have in my notes, I think there are so many modern equivalents of this, like the entrepreneur, the athlete, etc. All these people that find their passion is their conquering of things and their constant being at the top of whatever they are seeking for the conqueror, its history or et cetera. Yeah. There's a lot here that he talks about that we're really shrinking into a very short section. Cause I'm not going to go into the whole thing because I think actually a lot of this bleeds over into the rebel as well, but this is the most where he talks about history. I think where it's more historical, like along our lines, do you have thoughts here? No. Uh, he says a revolution, this is my favorite part of this whole section. He says a revolution is always accomplished against the gods. It is man's demands made against his fate. The demands of the poor are but a pretext. And I just have that as kind of a precursor of what he gets to in the rebel. Okay, moving on from that section. Those are those his three examples of how the absurd can live, how people can confront the absurd. Next, he goes on to the absurd creation. And he's really focused on art. Can people create art 
while confronting the absurd. Can absurd art exist? He said, quote, conquest or play acting, multiple loves, absurd revolt are tributes that man pays to his dignity in a campaign in which he is defeated in advance. Um, and like I said, it's the idea of the absurd revolt that sent me down this long, you know, years long uh, reading research project. Anyway, um, okay. The absurd joy par excellence is creation, according to uh, Camus. So he says, finding joy in the absurd, we can do that through creation. He says, art and nothing but art, said Nietzsche. We have art in order to not die of the truth. And I love that. And I wrote in my notes, I wish we had done Nietzsche first because then we could dive down that rabbit hole, but we were not going to because we haven't done Nietzsche, but we will in the future. And then hopefully this quote will uh, make a lot more sense, but I just love it and have it there. He says, for the absurd man, it is not a matter of explaining and solving, but of experiencing and describing. And so this is his, one of his problems with philosophy and people that have tried to create philosophical systems is that we cannot explain and solve, right? The absurd sort of task at hand isn't to solve the equation. It's not to solve the mysteries of the universe. We've already admitted as the absurd that that's impossible, that all that we can do as the absurd is to experience and describe our experience. And he says that is where absurdist art comes into play. We can write novels, we can create plays like he did, right? We can write books, we can paint, we can write poetry, we can do films, right? We can do all of these things that describe the experience of life in various ways, which I just love. I think it paints art and the idea of creation in a specific way. And he paints it, pun intended, in a way that isn't to provide meaning to ourselves or meaning to other people, which is how most people talk about art, but it's merely for us to find joy in the moment as absurdists as we confront the absurd, you know, on a constant basis. And his question here is, is an absurd work of possible? Which he answers, for an absurd work of art to be possible, thought in its most lucid form must be involved in it. But at the same time, thought must not be apparent except as the regulating intelligence. This paradox can be explained according to the absurd. The work of art is born of the intelligence's refusal to reason the concrete. It marks the triumph of the carnal. It is lucid thought that provokes it, but in a very act that thought repudiates itself. It will not yield to the temptation of adding to what is described a deeper meaning that it knows to be legitimate. It cannot be the end, the meaning, and the consolation of a life. Creating or not creating changes nothing. The absurd creator does not prize his work. He could repudiate it. He does something, he does sometimes repudiate it. So he says, the absurd artist does not create to create meaning, to find meaning as part of some, you know, giant abstract, you know, cosmic meaning in the universe, he creates merely to find temporary joy. And he might, you know, paint and then completely destroy the painting. He might write a book and then light it on fire and it never sees the light of day. And in fact, Camus talks about how the absurdist creator does not create for others to digest. He creates only for himself. Now they might digest it and that's fine, but true absurdist art can only be created through facing the absurd, through existence in the moment, through creation for creation's sake only. And I like how he frames it where he says, we must not see intelligence in the creation, right? It must, it must only be there as the regulation of the absurdist that leads him to the creation. I just love the way he frames that, um, talking about absurd and art 
and so et cetera? And the answer is yes, absurdist art can exist, but it can only exist in the ways that he just stated. Any thought on that? I would agree with that, 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 that there is nothing more present than this act of creation, especially artistically. If you're painting to, or whatever, right, to right. create meaning in your life, then you are more of an existentialist, right? Maybe. Maybe you've admitted that life has no meaning, that you must find it for yourself, and so you find it through art. Well, Camus would say that's a leap, right, that he would disagree with because you have violated the sort of terms of the equation. You violated the terms of the agreement of the absurd. Well, then he goes so into... Go ahead. Okay. I was going to say so much of art as we know it, art history, art interpretation, art commerce is about the audience. And I guess what I'm appreciating here is that none of this, at least in terms of absurdism, is about the uh, the, the audience. It's about yeah. the artists themselves. Exactly. Um, and I think that's that that's something that I can definitely get on board with in terms of, like I said, the suggestive understanding of living within the absurd and that interpretation mm -hmm. thereof. Um, yep. I guess the, the one thing that came as you were reading through that, that came to my mind that actually was not a statement. It is a question. Where might a political artist fit into this idea of the absurd? Where does a Banksy fit into um, this idea of creation um, within the absurd? There's clearly mm -hmm. an aim there, but there's also parts of this that fit the absurd is that there is no, there's no profit motive. At least there, there wasn't originally. And, and, mm -hmm. and there's no, um, seeking of even permanence, right? These things, he creates these works of art knowing they're going to disappear. And at first it would, they would be painted over. And now, of course, they're being cut down and, and sold at auction and things along those right. lines. Where do you think he would fit, that type of art would fit within this absurdist discourse? I, mean, I think you described it well, right? There are some characteristics of Banksy as an example that would fit in the absurdist sort of context. But like you said, he is a, I mean, I don't know his fully intentions, right? No one does. But the fact that he is a political artist, that his art clearly has political themes and is ideological, I think that we see the intelligence that Camus is talking about. We see that clearly in his art. As a result, it probably wouldn't be considered absurdist art because we see it. It's evident, right? Clearly it right. has a message, right? Right. Agreed. Okay, so that's the end of that section. We could go on and on, and I really actually like it. And I actually would love to come back to that and talk about Walter Benjamin's idea of art and reproduction and so forth, maybe together. Maybe we'll do that. I was thinking about, you know, we did an episode at the beginning of the year, what we wanted to accomplish. And one of my things was I was going to go deep down the rabbit hole of art and political art and so forth. And clearly that's not going to happen because we're two months away from the end of the year. But I want to come back to it someday. Anyways, next section is titled... Kirillov, and it's, uh, he's referring to the character in Dostoevsky's Demons, or The Possessed. And he has a whole section talking about how this character is an absurdist hero. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time here. It's kind of interesting that Dostoevsky was inspired to write the novel uh, basically against the Russian nihilist movement and its leaders, and was motivated specifically by Sergei Nietzscheev, uh, which we discussed in our episode on Russian nihilism and revolutionary nihilism. So it's just interesting that that's Dostoevsky's goal here. And Camus argues that both this character and Dostoevsky could potentially be argued that they are absurdist artists, though he goes to length to explain how Dostoevsky takes some interesting turns that he would not agree with um, as an absurdist. So it ends up not being one. Um, I'm not spending a lot of time here. I don't, if you want to listen to us talk about a Russian 
you know, Russian literature, you can listen to our episode on uh, Russian nihilism and revolutionary yeah. nihilism. Fathers and sons. Yeah, exactly. Fathers and sons. That's right. I forgot what which one we did. Um, yeah, exactly. So you can do that if you want. Next, he goes to ephemeral creation. Um, and this is what I was talking about earlier, uh, where, the, you know, the temporary aspect of absurdist creation, where an absurdist artist doesn't create to create a legacy. He doesn't create so that his art will be in a museum uh forever he creates only so that he can find joy in the moment in his present and you know multiple presents uh do i i want to read one quote here though that i really like he says the absurd artist must quote work and create for nothing to sculpture and clay to know that one's creation has no future no to see one's work destroyed in a day while being aware that fundamentally this has no more importance than building for centuries this is a difficult wisdom that absurd thought sanctions. Performing these two tasks simultaneously, negating on the one hand and magnifying it on the other, is the way open to the absurd creator. And I love this last sentence. He says, he, the absurd creator, must give the void its colors. I love that. Um, yeah, so that's it. That's He talks about absurdist art because, of course, he would as a playwright and author and so forth. Now we finally are in the last section. Finally, we can talk about the myth of Sisyphus. So he's gone through all of that. Uh, by the way, this isn't that long. I think the total thing is 70 pages or something. And he goes in through like, you know, 60 or 65. I can't remember when this section starts uh, before he finally gets to the myth of Sisyphus. So here we go. So let's talk about the myth uh, briefly, just what it is. Um, there's many different versions. So I'm not going to go the absolute like details, but in general, Sisyphus was a king who died and then through his sort of intelligence and, you know, he conniving, he escapes death. He escapes the underworld. Then he dies again and he escapes the underworld again. So there's two times that he escapes the underworld and different versions and ways of how he does this. One times he like, I think, chains up Hades himself and whatever. It doesn't matter. It's both in defiance of the gods, though, right? Like no, exactly. That's a key point. That's he's not a god. He's a mortal. He's a king. Right. And his escape of the underworld is in defiance of the gods and their will, right? He cheats death, the god of death. So he's punished by the gods. Finally, he is punished. And his eternal punishment is rolling a large boulder up a hill. And just before he reaches the top, it rolls down the hill again. Then he walks down and begins again for eternity. So this is Camus, his talking about this. He says, the gods had condemned Sisyphus to ceaselessly rolling a rock to the top of a mountain whence the stone would fall back of its own weight. They had thought with some reason that there is no more dreadful punishment than futile and hopeless labor, which I think is funny because that's like, you know, a little bit of sarcasm from Camus at the end that like, that's literally what we do all the time, um, but whatever. Um, so you get the idea. That's the myth of Sisyphus. Let's talk about Camus' interpretation, because he says that Sisyphus is the absurd hero. So there's a lot of quotes here, a few quotes I want to read from Camus. He says, you've already grasped that Sisyphus is the absurd hero. He is as much through his passions as through his torture. His scorn of the gods, his hatred of death, his passion for life won him that unspeakable penalty in which the whole being is exerted toward accomplishing nothing. This is the price that must be paid for the passions of this earth. At the very end of his long effort, measured by skyless space and time without depth, the purpose is achieved. Then Sisyphus watches the stone rush down in a few moments toward that lower world whence he will have to push it up again toward the summit. He goes back down to the plain. It is during that return, that pause, that Sisyphus interests me. 
a face that toils so close to stones is already stone itself. I see that man is going back down with a heavy yet measured step toward the torment of which he will never know in the end. That hour, like a breathing space which returns as surely as his suffering, that is the hour of consciousness. If this myth is tragic, that is because the hero is conscious. Where would his torture be, indeed, if at every step the hope of succeeding upheld him? The workman of today works every day in his life at the same tasks, and this fate is no less absurd. But it is tragic only in the rare moments when it becomes conscious. Sisyphus, proletarian of the gods, powerless and rebellious, knows the whole extent of his wretched condition. It is what he thinks of during his descent, the lucidity that was to constitute his torture, at the same time crowns his victory. There is no fate that cannot be surmounted by scorn. So he compares Sisyphus to basically modern man, right? That we are the same as Sisyphus. We toil away endlessly in this, what's the term? The workman today, same task. The fate is no less absurd. He already gave us an example earlier on. We do the same exact thing over and over again. But he says Sisyphus, when he returns to the bottom of the mountain, that's when he is conscious of his entire being, his entire situation. That is when he is the absurd hero because he has time to contemplate his station in life, basically. And the worker is the same. He tells us earlier on, Camus does, that when we ask why, when we finally realize what we are doing and why we confront the absurd, once we gain that consciousness, that's when we confront conscious existence as well. So Sisyphus on his way back down the mountain, that's what interests Camus, because that is, he says, you know, this hour of consciousness for Sisyphus, where he is forced to confront his existence. And that is when he becomes aware of the absurd. Anything to go before I continue? Well, and the, the key part that I assume you're getting to is this is where in that hour confrontation, this is where he can choose to quote unquote exit. Now we know there's probably limitations within the Greek mythos right. that, that would keep him from like whatever killing himself or because this is his, his, his punishment. But let's pretend for just a moment that he could. This would be his opportunity to exit. But rather than exit, he chooses to reengage in the struggle. And this is why he's the absurdist hero is because he gains consciousness of his, I mean, this isn't like every single time, right? Maybe it's the first time or whatever. But on the way back down the mountain, he gains this consciousness of his plight essentially forever. And he realizes at the end, right, like you said, he has a choice and he makes the choice to push the rock back up the hill, right? And like you said, maybe he doesn't have the choice. He, he clearly doesn't. He has to keep doing it. But he confronts the absurd. He confronts his consciousness and his choice is to continue on pushing the rock. And so, I mean, the, the analogy here is that we all as, you know, I say we like we're truly aware or whatever, but that's fine. We as people that have reached this level of consciousness and confront the absurd also have a choice, right? We have a choice to continue on and live in the moment and continue to confront the absurd. And to use Camus examples, we can do that through finding love as the Don Juanist does. We can do that through a passion of acting as the actor does. We can do that through conquering, which I don't necessarily suggest, but the conqueror does that. We can do that as the artist, right? We can paint, we can create, we can write novels, we can do all of those things, knowing that all of those things are fleeting, that it's only a temporary satisfaction of our passions. The same is true for Sisyphus. If he finds you know, joy in the pushing the, the activity, right? The pushing of the rock up the hill, he knows that that is a temporary joy, that it will cease that he will be forced to walk down again. And it's interesting because I think that Camus really flips this myth on the head because if you're just viewing it at the surface level, you would say, 
Sisyphus's joy comes in walking down the hill because he's not carrying that load. But Camus would argue Sisyphus's joy comes at pushing the rock up the hill because he it, that's when he confronts the absurd dead on. That's when he has experienced his freedom of making the choice to, as the absurdist, continue the task, even though there's no future in it, even though it provides no meaning, even though no one else is getting anything of it. His relationship with the absurdist universe is found through his relationship through the rock, through that activity that is fleeting. Anything to add on that? I have one more quote that I'm going to read before we leave, but anything on that particular part? No. Okay. Last quote. For the rest, he knows himself to be a master of his days. At that subtle moment, when man glances backward over his life, Sisyphus returning towards his rock. In that slight pivoting, he contemplates that series of unrelated actions, which becomes his fate. Created by him, combined under his memory, memory's eye, and soon sealed by his death, thus convinced of the holy human origin of all that is human. A blind man, eager to see, who knows that the night has no end, he is still on the go. The rock is still rolling. I leave Sisyphus as the foot of the mountain. One always finds one burden again. But Sisyphus teaches the higher fidelity that negates the gods and raises rocks. He too concludes that all is well. The universe henceforth without a master seems to him neither sterile nor futile. Each atom of that stone, each mineral flake of that night-filled mountain in itself forms a world. The struggle itself toward the height is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. And that's how he ends that section. Uh, he goes on and has some appendices and talks about Kafka and absurdism and stuff. But that's how he ends the myth of Sisyphus. And this is a famous quote. If you've never heard it before. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. Any closing thoughts? Uh, I mean, it's definitely an interesting, interesting take on, on, to be blunt, some very important philosophical questions, even though he himself is not necessarily seeking to create a new philosophy as we kind of let into there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that's important here as we um, have discussed um, in its influence towards post-structural ways of thinking. There are parts that I personally, I won't speak for you, personally get hung up on um, mm -hmm. that we don't want to attribute directly to Camus' version of egoism, but you can see kind of cues there. And we talked a little bit about those. Um, in terms we'll of- we'll come back to that. I want to, like, I want to address those, but I don't want to do it here. I want to do it when we do Sterner probably. Yeah, we're way to too do long that. into the tooth here. I did, mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll get to those next time. Um, on something else. I think Sterner also provides a better framework for us. He provides the language and the critiques for us to then delve into that. Those right. Thoughts. And discussions. Who doesn't provide like any of that clearly? Ethical and moral understandings of human nature. Like I said, mm -hmm. willing to admit my own limitations into falling into that way of thinking. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely something that, that informs my way of thinking. Of course, also empathy and understanding one's time and place within, of course, relationships around them, not just like larger society on the whole. I get that. That's very difficult. That's very abstract. But like I said, the absolving one, uh, absolving one, at least in, in any sort of extent to understanding those social relationships around, around someone, um, around other people um, in one's immediate environment. That's also where I get a little bit hung up. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that's what Camus advocating. You obviously went into depth as to how those relationships might work and how present upon present upon present, those relationships can change and develop even under like that very kind of self under self aware understanding of one's engagement with the uh, absurd. Those are things that I definitely picked up on. I know you wanted me to fill in uh, a few more blanks on the idea of conquest as part of this. 
Um, I don't know that I really needed to. We've spent enough time on another a, a whole mm-hmm. host of other episodes that would probably answer those questions, my feelings yeah, on the idea true. of conquest mm-hmm. um, in fulfilling uh, one's engagement with the absurd. All that aside, my critiques, uh, sometimes discomfort with some of these ideas that, that we're, we're talking about here. All that aside, I think there's a lot of value here in engaging with questions regarding I mean, to be blunt, those ones we talk about with ethically constituted stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why am I, I here? And, here too. Yeah, why am I here and what happens with the future? And and again, my critiques aside, I do think there's a lot of value here. And I do urge um, our listeners to maybe go in and, and dig back in and read and take some of that in the spirit of Camus, that meaning for yourselves rather than solely relying upon us and our mm-hmm. interpretation, especially my uh, somewhat disagreeable one towards the end there. I think that would be like the best suggestion I could provide. So that's, 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 I think. Yeah, I mean, I want to let's say too, because I don't th- know if we say it enough, right? That like our whole project with this program isn't to like, preach what people ought to do. It's really just experience of us learning, right? And us researching. And, you know, I had read the myth of Sisyphus many times, but we had never talked about it. And I had never gone to a depth of us trying to fully really understand it, right? So I'm not here telling you like, well, you should be an absurdist and like Camus is 100% right. And like, we would never say something like that. I don't think on this program, this is for you to, you know, maybe, maybe provide a context for you to begin to think about this and yeah, like Jared said, we highly suggest that you explore it for yourself. But I th- we only talk about it because we think it provides a really important framework, even if you disagree with everything, a really important framework that must be confronted. It must be addressed, right? Camus' position must be addressed by whatever philosophy you believe in. You know what I mean? So I think we can be out there. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app that will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.